night. Good. If you got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Ecclesiastes. We're going to have a study together, working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters. We can do it. Maybe in a week or two. We'll see. So, um, as we come, as we come to this text, one of the things, Ecclesiastes, that we want to understand going in, we're going to read it in a minute and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it, but one of the things we want to understand going in, Ecclesiastes is part of what is called the wisdom books. Uh, fits right alongside with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, typically, or traditionally anyway, they're all attributed to Solomon, although we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, um, whether or not that is a fact or not, it certainly has Solomonic thought to it. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. So as we look at it, one of the reasons why this is included within wisdom literature is it's going to require wisdom to be able to read it, to be able to understand what's going on and what's happening, much like uh, when we went through Job, if you guys remember when we went through Job. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's read the first chapter together. We'll take a look at it. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. If there is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases his sorrow. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you this, this evening, Lord, as we look at this book as we begin this study. God, I pray that you would guide us and lead us. God, give us eyes to see and <coughs> ears that are able to hear what it is that your spirit is speaking to your people. God, help us to very clearly see and understand, Lord, as we come to this strange book. God, we ask your blessing and your anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so when we look at this book, there's a couple of things we need to get to right out the gate. First off, what is the theological message of Ecclesiastes? We want to we nail that down. So, the book of Ecclesiastes is a Kohelet's autobiography. Kohelet is a Hebrew word that they don't know how to translate. So they translate it. The preacher. So it's somewhere close to decree, to speak. Um, a lot of current scholars think Koholet is going to refer to <clears throat> the main source that is in uh, Ecclesiastes, beginning 
in chapter 1, verse 12, going all the way from ch- to chapter 12, um, I'm going to say verse 7 or 8. So that whole section is going to be the main body of Kohelet's prose. It's a prose, not a poem. It's like a monologue. It's like a speech. It's like a play. It's like, if you want to kind of wrap your mind around it, it's like someone who is giving a monologue about the life of Solomon and another person, the narrator, who is going to frame it. He's going to frame it in the concepts or the point of the overall story. And what we're going to see as we work our way through uh, Ecclesiastes, what we're going to see, what we'll, the, hopefully the groundwork that we're going to lay down for it all today is this concept of the true assessment of the world under the sun without God. He is going to talk about God in different terms. We're going to take a look at it in a minute. But ultimately, he, Kohelet, he sees <coughs> God as, as a, an all-powerful being who doesn't get involved in the problems of men. Somebody that should be honored uh, and feared, but not really engaged. And we'll work our way through some of that as we work our way through. So basically, the theological message is, Life is hard, and then you die. We've heard that before somewhere, haven't we? No? So, that's kind of the message of Koholet. Koholet, that's kind of his message, the preacher, the, the one who's given the monologue. Now, I said it's Solomonic's thought, because when you look at it, I, I guess I want you to kind of, I don't know a great way to get your head into it, but if you can see it like a late night TV and you have one of them, uh, the last guy I can remember is Letterman. So say Letterman gets up there and he does a monologue about someone. <clears throat> Koholet, the speaker, the preacher, is doing a monologue about Solomon. He's obviously referring to Solomon, right? Especially in the beginning, we see a lot of parallels with Solomon. But later on, he's going to leave that and he's going to continue to to delve into this despairing idea of life under the sun, that nothing in the world ever changes, that everything stays the same. And if we're honest, most of us at one time or another, in a time of despair, have felt the same way. And every time we do, we fall into the same trap that uh, Koholet falls into. What's that? I'm looking at life without God. If I leave God out of the equation, then all I see is misery and heartache, and life never changes. Life never gets any better. Here's one of his views about God, and we'll read it later on, but in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. See, there's a separation. God's there, you're here. He believes in the existence of God, so it's a little different than some people today who just throw uh, uh, God out, like, well, there can be no God because life is so hard. He believed there was a God, but that God doesn't get involved. He's not involved. He's in heaven, you're on earth, this is the way life is, you know, suck it up. It's not going to get any better. So as a result, nothing had meaning. Nothing had meaning for Kohelet. Not wealth, not wisdom, not love. After all, death brought everything to an end. Death was the ultimate end. He's preoccupied with it. Over and over again, he's going to talk about, well, what's the point? I worked so hard, I amassed all this wealth, and then I die and somebody else gets it. What was the point? It was all a waste. My toil was a waste. And because of that, he's going to bounce between concepts where he hates life. Ecclesiastes 2.17, he says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Nothing really matters. Nothing changes. I hated life. He bounces between that view, that that he hates life, and the view of, I, I might as well just get as much enjoyment now, as I can. So I want to be able to enjoy now. So in Ecclesiastes 2.24, 
He says, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. As we work our way through the book, it's going to be bracketed by two statements of the narrator. The first seven or eight verses and the last six verses are a bracket where the narrator is going to sum up the point of the monologue, the prose of Kohelet, the preacher. He's going to sum it up. And so the ending... The, the sum that he gives to all that we're going to study in the first 12 chapters is this. <clears throat> Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So my son, beware of anything beyond this. The making of many books, there is no end, and many or much study is wearisome for the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the culmination of Ecclesiastes. The from one, from chapter one, uh, verse twelve, all the way to twelve nine, you're going to be dealing with the preacher's prose about how hard life is, how difficult life is, where is God in all these circumstances, what's going on. This is real. A lot of people don't like to study this book because it's challenging. But it's only challenging because it's real. There's not going to be one of us who cannot relate to what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes. At one time or another who have felt the same despair, wondered the same things, had the same kind of questions. So we'll be challenged as we work our way through. There's a man who, who provided an alternative translation. Whenever I talk to the guys that hang out around here, the guys who work here, guys who come to my studies... I always tell people, when you study the Bible and you read the Bible, read five different translations at the same time. I tell you that because every translation is trying to be, uh, um, is trying to provide the thought, the concept of what's being said. There's no such thing, just so everybody is aware, there's no such thing as a word-for-word translation. I don't care what you heard. There's one called the literal translation, and in the literal translation, if you had it, you wouldn't be able to understand it because it doesn't make sense. Words are in the wrong order. They just give you a literal word for word. This is what the word means. You and I both know when we talk, the definition of the words we use is not always what we mean. Yes or no? Right? You have to, you have to understand a little bit about the sentence to know what's going on, right? What, what I mean by, by, especially in English, different figures of speech and idioms. Same way when we come to the Bible. The Bible, the translators are given this impossible task of putting themselves in the mind of the writer and presenting to you a, an idea so that you can understand what the writer's trying to get across. Now, mix upon that three books that are incredibly difficult. Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Why are they so difficult? Because you're dealing with prose or poetry from an ancient source, going back to 10th century B.C. So that's a challenge, no? Sometimes what they do when they run into it is they run into words like a koalet, and they say, okay, we're going to call him the preacher. Maybe the guy's name was koalet. We don't know. Nobody knows what the word means. So you can call him preacher. Some will call him teacher. The point is, we know it's a, <clears throat> it's a person, right, that is kind of acting their way through a lot of the issues that was going on in the life of Solomon. So we want to be able to see it. So I encourage people, read five. Why? Because if there's something weird in the Hebrew, 
you'll notice because you'll read one translation and it'll say one thing, you read the other one and you go, what? Those don't even sound the same. And you read the third one, you can tell which ones are gravitating to which things, but it shows, all it's saying to you is this is difficult language. That's it. Don't freak out. There's no such thing as only one text of the Bible. And no such thing. That, that is a group of people who want to trade truth for certainty. Do you understand what that means? Trading truth for certainty is never what we want to do. What we want to do is follow the truth, right? Which is going to take work. The Lord intended it that way. <clears throat> if you've paid any attention to life, life's not easy. Yeah? So we, we have to work our way through life. We have to work our way through comprehending and understanding God. We have to work our way through comprehending and understanding the Word of God. So when we come to the study, we want to be willing to do that. <clears throat> this guy named Fox, he gives an alternate translation just to try to help us understand that one I just read about following the Lord. Here's, here's his alternate translation. Completely meaningless, Ohelet said. Everything is meaningless. Furthermore, uh, Kohelet has, uh, was a wise man. He taught people knowledge. He heard, investigated, and put in good order many proverbs. Koholet sought to find words of delight and to write honestly words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. <clears throat> They're like firmly implanted nails are the masters of the collections. They are given by a shepherd. Furthermore, of these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of books, and much study wearies the body. The, the, the accumulation of man's wisdom piled together and when we pile all of man's wisdom up the 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 thought kohelet comes to the thought is there's much weariness to this study anybody ever had a, a course on philosophy i love philosophy philosophy is probably one of my favorite things to study but when i study philosophy i melt my brain because i get i get myself into philo philosophical uh circular, I don't know what to call them, like whirlpools. And I keep bouncing around between these philosophical thoughts, and, and I find myself like uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Anybody ever read Soren Kierkegaard? He kind of sounds like Kohelet sometimes. And, and, uh, or, or, or Nietzsche. You guys heard of Nietzsche, right? The, so some of their philosophies, what happens is they're circling all these concepts of human wisdom and trying to understand the evil in the world and suffering and, and how does all that work with God? And it sends them in this weary journey that we're going to read as we go through Ecclesiastes. That's the point of the journey as we work our way through. But nevertheless, even as we work our way through this, we still admit that Kohelet has rightly described the horror of the world under the curse. The fallen world apart from God. The fallen world without hope, with no hope. So as we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ is the one who redeems us from the vanity, from the meaninglessness that Kohelet suffered. It's Jesus who redeems us from Kohelet's meaningless world. How? By subjecting himself to it. In fact, the same word, the same Hebrew word, for vanity of vanities, or the same Hebrew word <coughs> for meaninglessness. It's, it's all the same word. In Romans chapter 8, when it talks about all of creation is frustrated in futility, it's the same word in Greek. It's in fact the word used in Septuagint to define this that we're talking about. And it says that that was all subjected in hope. In hope of what? That one day there would come a Redeemer. For all of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the day in which the ultimate redemption takes place. It's the hope that is missing from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is removed from the hope of the redemption of God. It's removed from the hope of the, the movement of God in history. That God does touch history. That God, that things do change. And we're going to talk about that as we work our way through it. Jesus is the Son of God, but nonetheless, He experienced the meaninglessness of the world. So He could free us from it. 
He entered into the same vanity so that he could set us free. As he hung on a cross, his own father deserted him. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) Whatever occurred at that moment, we're not ever really told, but whatever occurred at that moment was probably the one thing that led Jesus to weep great drops of blood in the garden of Gatshmone, in the oil press, as he feared, if that's a good word, as he, the, the event that was to come. I don't, I don't know that it was the cross or the nails or the scourging, but I think there was something in that moment between father and son. At this point, Jesus, at that point on the cross, he experienced that same frustration that Kohatel talks about. The same thing that, that Kohelet says, hey, <clears throat> meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanity, life sucks and then you die. That's what he's talking about. And that's what Jesus is experiencing on the cross, right? But then Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Because he became the curse for us. Because he turned it around. Because he is the only one who was able to do so. We can read about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. So as a result, Christians can experience deep significance precisely in the areas where Koholet felt despair because Jesus has restored unto us wisdom, labor, love, life. He's restored it to us by facing death. Because by facing death, Jesus conquered the one thing that Kohelet was the most afraid of. That life is just a weary trudging, and then you die, and that's the end. But Jesus is proclaiming that that's not the end. Rather, death is the entrance into the presence of God. So, as we begin, you notice we haven't got to verse 1 yet, but we will. As we begin, okay... I want us to desire to comprehend the act. I want us to be able to comprehend the purpose, the point. When Ecclesiastes was written, it meant something to those who received it. So you and I, we we have to do a little bit of work to say where it is. Where is the hope? Where Where is the purpose and the source of this book, this wisdom literature that speaks about Solomon's life? Because Solomon's life at the end ends in apostasy. There's no part of the story of Solomon that says he ever repented or turned. Solomon's is a story of starting well and finishing lousy. So, so barring some event that we're not told about, I'm not placing ultimate judgment on Solomon. That would be God's job. But if I look at the basis of the text, the final things that Solomon's doing is building temples for his wives to worship other gods. That's not good. So as we look, I want you to picture the writer of Ecclesiastes, not Solomon, but he's writing about Solomon. Are you tracking with me? He's writing about his life. He's writing about the despair of his life. He's writing about the fact that he lost hope. He's writing about the fact that he thought that life was just an endless spiral of misery. And then the narrator of the story is going to provide for us the understanding of what it is that Colette's talking about. What it is that the preacher's saying. What it is that he's feeling. What's going on in his life. And it's going to end <laughs> leaving us with this idea that the end of all things is to first and foremost pursue a relationship with God. Because everything you do in the first 12 chapters is going to be without him. The assumption that God doesn't care, that God won't enter into history, that God's not going to speak into your life. Now, reality, how many times we felt that way? How many times we said, oh, here I am in another, you know, mess, maybe of my own creation, but here I am in it, up to my neck, should have known. How many times did I repeat the very same phrases where life is hard and then you die? You know, without hope. But if I take an honest look at my life, I can point to the fingerprints of God. I can point to His intervention in it. 
I can point to his touch and I can recognize that there is hope. And so hopefully we're going to be able to do that. This book is going to divide into three parts. Prologue, main body, epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are both written as though they're from a different person. Doesn't mean that it is, but it may be. The prologue and the epilogue are written like it's by the narrator, and the body is written like it's by the preacher. You guys with me? So the, the prologue and the epilogue tell us the overview, and then we'll have the body in the middle that we look at. The whole point is to imply two authors working to get across a story. In my opinion, it's a literary device, okay? It's, a, it's like a giant allegory. It's like a giant story. It's like a giant parable being told on the pages of Scripture to help us understand, to illustrate a truth. It's our challenge to be able to be wise enough to take a shovel and dig it out. Turn over the dirt and find what it is that is going on. What it is that is going to be happening. So let's take a look at the beginning. It starts with uh, the narrator. And this is the first part of the frame. Narrating where we're going in the next several chapters. It begins. Verse 1. The words of the preacher. Koholet. <clears throat> the son of David. King in Jerusalem. Now, remember I told you sometimes Hebrew is difficult. Well, let me give you a, a little verse one. Here's the difficulty. Kohelet, we don't know what it means, so our best stab at it is preacher, speaker. And then, the son of David. And then you have the phrase, the king of Jerusalem. <clears throat> it is, we're not able to ascertain in the Hebrew whether it means David, the king of Jerusalem, or the son of David, and the king of Jerusalem goes back to the preacher. You cannot definitively say. Most people point to that and say, this is Solomon. And I told you before, I think it is talking about Solomon, but it's not clear in the text. It is impossible to say. Now, you can trade the truth that I just told you for certainty, and you can just say, Solomon, that makes life easier for me. But be careful on that journey where we take the truth and we sacrifice it. So that we can feel comfortable in our certainty. It doesn't make any difference, does it? <clears throat> Whether it's Solomon or not, the point is, what's he going to say? This is a superscription. A superscription is, the, is like the title page on the papers you wrote in school. <clears throat> you guys remember the title page where you'd name whatever your thesis was or whatever your paper was on? That's what a superscript is. A superscript comes later. A superscript never has to be written at the time that the prophecies or the word was given. I can give you three other examples. Proverbs 1.1. You guys remember when we went through Proverbs? The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. It's a superscription. Put together after all the Proverbs are collated and brought in one book. And then whoever wrote it, doesn't make any difference. It's still true. Writes, hey, these are the Proverbs of Solomon. He had the same thing in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. We don't really believe that Jeremiah the prophet gave all his prophecies and then collated it all into a book, put a spine on it, closed it up, and, and put it in the bookstore, do we? Jeremiah gave his prophecies. And someone gathered the prophecies of Jeremiah, put a title page on it, the prophecies of Jeremiah, boom, you have a superscript. A superscript giving us uh, information on when it's written and who it's about. Nahum 1 1 is the same way. An, uh, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. Same way. Often comes together <clears throat> with the prophets. So we find ourselves in the narrator's voice, okay? Look at the narrator's voice. He's going to give us, in the next eight verses, seven verses, he's going to give us the introduction. Here is what the preacher's about to be talking about. All right? Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless of meaninglessness. It's the same word repeated over and over and over again to emphasize the emptiness of what's about to come. Now, this is in the prologue, the beginning of the prologue, the first book of the prologue. How do I know there's an epilogue? Because when I get to chapter 12, verse 8, it says the same thing. Vanity of vanities, says a preacher, all is vanity. It's 
Now the summation, the epilogue, it's the summation of what was said during the 12 chapters that we're going to be looking at. The, the prologue is the beginning, describing what's about to happen, what's about to take place. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the purpose of all the hard things in life? That's the question. Why does life have to be so hard? That's what he's asking. So the, the narrator is saying, here's where we're going to enter. We're going to enter into <clears throat> Kohelet. He's going to start talking to us about why is life so hard. He's going to ask the question. It's a rhetorical question. There's not necessarily an answer that's going to be given, but there's going to be an answer that's bouncing around in your head. That's the purpose of the monologue, right? To get you to think. To get you to think about the ideas and the concepts are, are, that are working out. What is the purpose of all the misery and the hard things of man in life? Where? Under the sun. Under the sun. He's going to use that phrase like 39 times. Under the sun. Under the sun. Life on earth. God's in heaven. We're on earth. Why is life so hard here? This is a question. This is what the preacher is going to be focused on. So under the sun, it restricts the entrance. He doesn't believe that God's going to step in. So as we work our way through, we're going to show the truth that God does step into history. But sometimes in our despair, have you ever been blinded to the truth of how God's working in your life? Have you ever been blinded by your circumstances? You just assume that the circumstances are so bad, God can't be in this. Those are all assertions that we're making. And we fall into the same trap. Please listen. You fall into the same trap. What is that? You're trading the truth for certainty. I'm trading the truth of the reality that God is with me in my misery, that God is with me in the miry clay, that God is with me in the midst of all this junk that I don't understand, but God is here and He's going he's to help me and show me the way through. I'll trade that truth because it's so hard to deal with because instead we're asking the question, why? Why didn't you just take it away? Why did it have to be like this? Why did my life have to take this turn? Those are real questions that we ask, isn't it? And the beauty for me, guys, the beauty for me is the canon of Scripture didn't cut out this book and say, well, we're just, we just don't want to deal with it. The canon of Scripture said, no, we're going to leave, this is right here in the middle of wisdom literature. Why? But the whys that we ask will blind us from the truth. See, God says, the secret things belong to Him. But it's the glory of kings to search them out. The book of Proverbs and wisdom literature is like the beginning of our journey, right? Helps us understand what road we're on. <clears throat> so that when we come to Ecclesiastes, which is next, right? And now we're having to deal with the hard things. We don't lose our way. Because we can acknowledge that even in the midst of the darkness, God's there. Now what the psalmist declared? Psalm 139? Where can I hide from your spirit, Lord? If I make my bed in the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I go to the bottom of the sea or the darkest dungeon, the psalmist says, even there your right hand is with me. There is never a time in our experiences in life, despite how we feel, that God's not with us. But, the preacher, Kohelet, he's struggling with these ideas. And so the narrator is laying this out for us. Here's his problem. He doesn't understand why life is so hard under the sun. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> this is what he says. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains the same forever. What's he mean? Nothing ever really changes. You ever said those words? Or did you ever put a person's name in there? No one ever really changes. If they're a dirt bag now, there'll be a dirt bag later, there'll be a dirt bag weeks from now. 
Nothing ever changes. This is the preacher's view. This is how he sees his world. Nothing ever really changes. People come, this is what he's saying. People come, people go. But it's still the same here. Maybe we have more technology and we have more ability to do more things. But in the end, life is still hard and then you die. This is the, this is the message that the preacher is laying out. And this is why he's losing hope. Because his focus has become what we would call anthropocentric. Anthropocentric means his focus is man-centered. He thinks the story of the universe is about man. And he doesn't think the story of the universe is about God and his redemption of man. So when he looks at the suffering of man and all the suffering that he can see, he loses sight of God, he loses hope, and he despairs. And that's where he is. There's no, there's no hope, there's no answer, life never changes. Look at verse 5, he's going to say the same thing a different way. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rose again. What's that mean? The sun comes up, the sun goes down, but nothing ever really changes. Do you guys see it? Sun comes up, sun goes down, then it hurries around and happens again. And it hurries around and happens again. And day bleeds into day, bleeds into day, but nothing really changed. It looks like something's happening, because the sun goes up and the sun goes down, right? But all that motion is not really accomplishing anything. The next day is just like the one before it. This is the message of the preacher. He goes on in verse 6. Another example of the same thing. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around it goes. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Again, same thing. There's a lot of motion. There's a lot of things happening. The wind blows today, the wind will blow tomorrow, the wind will blow next week, the wind's going to continue to blow. Off and on the wind blows, but nothing ever really changes. Nothing ever really changes. This is the despair of the preacher, the man who was filled with wisdom. It's a picture, right, of who Solomon was and Solomon's journey into despair. It doesn't have to be written by Solomon. It just has to be written by someone who who understood the story of the life and the struggles that he went through. No? Who puts it together for us in an allegory, a story about the preacher and his message of despair who lost his hope and his anchor to hope because he lost the ability to see God in every day. He separated God's existence from where man is. He put himself in the middle of it all. He put his suffering in the middle of it all. And then all he could see was what? His suffering. You guys know the closer you stand to an obstruction, the harder it is to see around it? You know what I mean? Like if I'm... I, 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 I do techno hunt. You guys know what that is? I take a bow down and I shoot it at a screen at a bow shop. And it tells me whether or not I hit the elk or the deer. It's like practice hunting. When you're as bad a hunter as I am, you have to do something. So, so I do this techno hunt. Well, every once in a while techno hunt, you, you, you hit an obstruction, which sometimes I think is lame. So I think my arrow would go through a leaf. But, hey, it's, 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 it's their rules. But here's what I do know. The closer I get to the tree, the harder it is to see around it. The closer I get and the more focused I get on my own misery and suffering, the harder it is to see around it because it come, it becomes so big. And some things are big things, no? I remember, I don't remember how many years ago it was. See, my granddaughter is, where's Kat? Second grade? She's second grade? Somebody help me. Anybody know my granddaughter? Second grade? (laughs) So when she was little, before she was in school, she would have seizures. And they don't know why. And so in California, there's a a children's hospital, Loma Linda Children's Hospital. They focus on on kids like that. And she spent, I want to say the first time she spent a month. And then they didn't come back for a long time, and we think maybe she's grown out of them. And then they moved to Idaho, and it happened again while she was here. And, uh, and then again, now it's been still, and we haven't seen it. But when that was going on, and, it, and you're full of worry and concern, isn't it easy to get real close to it? 
And then you start having that panic, like, oh, what am I, I'm, what am I doing in Idaho? She's in California, Loma Linda Hospital. Why am I here? Anybody can do this. <clears throat> I, sh- I should be there with her. We start to get so close to the issue and the misery and the suffering and the fear of what's going to happen in it all that I can't begin, I can't think about what's going on and I can't see God and what happens? I despair just like the preacher. Or, I believe God. I believe what God says. He loves my granddaughter more than I do. He wants to take care of my granddaughter. Doesn't mean she won't go through hard things. God loves her. God cares for her no matter what it looks like. I can trust him. Now I can back away a little bit from the misery. I can back away a little bit from the emergency. And I can start to see God moving. But how often do we, just like the preacher, get so close to our own misery we can't see it? Now all I can see is my misery and God hates me. I, I, I made a, for years, that was the first thing I said every, every time something went wrong in my life. God hates me. That was my reasoning. I lost a job. How come you lost a job? God hates me. Car broke down. How come the car broke down? God hates me. Right? Because we can get so close to our to ourselves being central that everything becomes about us, right? And we lose sight of the connection to anything else. And that's what's happening with the preacher. He's so close he can't see it. And so the narrator is telling us, here's, his, here's where he's lost his hope. Nothing in life ever changes. Look at verse 7. All the streams run into the sea. Have you ever seen the sea fill up? Last I checked, the, the Snake River's still flowing. No? Did it ever fill up wherever it's flowing into? No? And it, did it ever stop? I mean, it does when they close the dam off, but otherwise... Yeah, it keeps flowing, right? It's like this endless motion, but nothing's really being accomplished. That's what he's saying. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea's not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. It just keeps cycling. Life keeps cycling. Bad things keep happening. Nothing ever changes. Life is full of despair. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. He can't even describe it. The eye of man is never satisfied with seeing. And the ear is never satisfied or filled with hearing. Right? Yep, never satisfied. Eyes never full of seeing. Ears never full of hearing. There is, there, it is a constant happening. And that's his view of life and its suffering. It's just always going on. It's always happening. It's always spinning, but nothing ever changes. Verse 9. What has been is what will be. The past is going to be like the future. Yesterday sucked. Tomorrow's going to suck too. Right? Do you like to be around people like this? This is why I married Kathy. Just so you know, because I am a people like this. I wanted Pollyanna. I want somebody who wakes up and starts singing and, and talks about how beautiful everything is. So when Kathy's depressed, that Robert's house, you don't want to be nowhere near it. Yeah, it's no good. No good. Nobody wants to be this bad. Yesterday was bad. Tomorrow will be worse. What, <clears throat> and what has been is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So you, you get the despair. This is the point. The narrator is saying, this is what he's going to be talking about. So warning, warning, Will Robinson, the next 11 chapters are full of despair. They're full of despair, they're full of weariness, they're full of being worn out. Yesterday was bad, tomorrow is not going to be any different, nothing ever changes. Just so you are aware, that is not what the Bible teaches. That's just what the preacher feels. Do you guys understand? It's what the story's telling us about so that we can understand this is where he's at. The Bible's not afraid to tell you the truth about the people in the Bible. Did Abraham ever tell a lie? Yep. What about uh, Jacob? Yeah? Moses? 
Yeah, did they screw up? Did David ever cheat on his wife? I mean, come on. We see that they're real. The Bible's not afraid to tell us the reality of what's going on, but it does expect us to be aware when our feelings don't line up with truth. Unless you want to trade the truth for certainty. I can say, I don't care about the truth, and here's what I can be certain of. Life sucks. And I can just park myself in it and be miserable. Anybody want to live there? I'm a, I'm a pessimistic person, but even I don't want to live there. Right? I don't, want to, I don't want to delve in that place. What does the Bible really tell us? Listen to Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, this is the Lord speaking. I am doing a new thing. Well, didn't the guy just say nothing new under the sun? But what does God say? No, I'm doing new stuff, man. I'm, I'm interjecting into your life. Here's what he said. He said, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Can't you see? I'm making a road. I'm making a way in the wilderness. And I'm putting rivers in the desert. The Bible is full of God interjecting into history. It is our despair that says he's not there. That's not the truth. You guys remember Hagar? You know the story of Hagar. She's a slave. Sarah, the only time Abraham listens to his wife, he gets in trouble. Right? Or wrong? She says, hey, Abraham, I think you should sleep with uh, Hagar. And Abraham's stupid enough to say, okay. He's going to pay for it later, right? And then, so then, uh, Ishmael's born. You guys know Ishmael? Ishmael, and the Lord says to Abraham, uh, he says, look, you're going to have a son with Sarah. I never told you to sleep with Hagar. It was Abraham trying to make his own deal. So Sarah says to, to Abram, hey, after, uh, after Isaac's born, she says, hey, you've got to send Ishmael and Hagar away. So he does. Doesn't give them anything. Just sends them out into the desert with basically a skin of water. And Hagar goes out into the middle of the desert and she runs out of water. And she takes Ishmael, who's 16 roughly, and lays him down under a bush so he dies where she can't watch him die. And she goes away from him and lays down under another bush and begins to cry. And then God showed up. God showed up. She called him. The God who sees. I want to say it's El Leroy, something like that. El Leroy, and the God who sees. But He comes and He He provides her water, and they live. Ishmael lives. She lives. The God who sees interjected into history and made a difference in her life. Life does not just suck until you die. God is always moving. God is always accomplishing things. The writer of Isaiah says, he's doing a new thing. He'll provide you a way. Does God promise? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does it say? Trust in the Lord. With how much? Oh, there's the hard part, right? If I trade truth for certainty, and I say, I'm not going to trust in God. I'm just going to live life as a miserable bag of bones, complaining about everything. And then, is the rest of the Proverbs still true? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will what? He'll make your path straight. He'll show you where to go. Did He say He promises it will be all downhill? Did He say there will be no twists and turns, bumps and bruises along the way? No, but He says if you trust in Him, if you have loyal love for God, He'll have loyal love for you. And that's, that's a good promise. Don't throw away the truth for certainty. Look at verse 10. We'll just look at a couple more real quick. Verse 10, he says, Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Nothing new under the sun. That's the preacher's message. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, uh, things yet to be among those who come after. In the future, no one's going to remember us. In the past, we don't remember anybody of the past. We all live and die, and that's the end. This is the message, the monologue of a man who has lost sight of God. 
He has traded the truth for the certainty that God is not with me, that God is not watching over me. Now, his voice begins. The preacher's voice, that's the narrator's voice telling us what's to come. The preacher's voice begins in the next verse. Look what it says. I, the preacher, you hear it? Now he's talking. You guys with me? I, Colette, I, Colette, have been the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then the monologue begins. So as we work our way through in the next several weeks, hopefully it won't be even 12 weeks. I'm hoping to be able to cover more than one chapter at a time as we work our way through. But as we do, recognize what's happening. You're hearing the voice of a man who has traded the truth for his own certainty, even though that own certainty means I'm doomed. And we're going to set beside what he proclaims the truth of what God's word teaches. So that when we despair like him, that's the point of Ecclesiastes. Why is it here? It's here to help us walk in wisdom when life is hard. Teach us to walk in wisdom when life is hard. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to study this book, Lord, to to look deep into uh, the structure, the pool, the design, the purpose of Ecclesiastes. God, help us to reconcile. Help us to be like a king who wants to delve into the secret things of God, who wants to understand where the preacher, Koholet, where he has traded the truth of who God is because he's so close to his own misery. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes as we study. Help us to glean the truth, to grow in wisdom, and to learn every day more about the truth of who you are. For you, Lord God, are all we need to overcome the difficulties in our life. Lord, we look to you for your hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.